You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.einrand.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of New Ideal Live. This is the video podcast series of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. On this webinar and podcast, we discuss complex issues and events shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, which is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. I want to make those of you who are watching on social media, like on Facebook and on YouTube, uh, aware that if you want to be able to interact with us more directly today by asking questions, participating in chat, best way to do that is through Zoom. And above me, you will see uh, the way to do that. Go to zoom.us.join and type in the meeting ID 812-506-718. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. And in just a few moments, I'm going to be joined by my friend and colleague, Greg Salmieri, who uh, with me today is going to be talking about the question, should government just follow the science? And we'll say in a minute what that question is about and why we're discussing it. But before we do that, I just wanted to take a moment to remind people that this coming Friday and Saturday, uh, is an event that many of you probably would like to know more about. This is Ocon Live. This is the annual Objectivist Conference, which is going to be happening online this year, uh, Friday and Saturday. If you want to learn more about that and about its theme, Living a Life of Purpose, where I believe Greg is going to be giving one of the presentations, uh, please go to einrand.org slash live. Okay, so... Greg, if you're out there, I think uh, now is a good time to to join us. And I should uh, remind people if you haven't. Uh, hi, Ben. Hi, everyone. Hi, Greg. Uh, Greg is a, uh, a fellow with the Anthem Foundation and instructor at Rutgers University and occasionally uh, appears on this podcast uh, with us. So hi, Greg. Thanks for Hello. coming on board. Um, so we wanted to talk about this question, should government just follow the science? Uh, This is a question that comes up and it's come up in a number of different articles that I've been reading lately because there have been a number of state governors and also other government officials who've uh, been talking about when to reopen the economy, when to lift the uh, shelter in place orders or the lockdowns or what have you, depending upon what the science tells them to do. And we want to discuss if that's the right way to be thinking about this. Now, I wanna clear up right from the beginning that what we're not interested in discussing is the question of whether we should listen to the science at all. That, that is not in dispute. Uh, there is no implication here that we don't need to rely on scientific experts to tell us things about scientific matters. That is, uh, of course, true. Not everyone is qualified to do the work on that specialized knowledge requires. Doesn't mean that we should treat experts with uh, just blind reverence and faith. We have to re- have reason to think that they're experts. But supposing that they are experts, we have very good reason to listen to them. The question here, instead, is 
about whether scientific expertise is sufficient, whether it's enough for us to decide what to do in situations like this, uh, especially if it's enough for a government, uh, if it's enough for government to rely on to decide what to do about whether to have a lockdown or not, or when or for how long. Uh, and I think this is a question that applies to more than simply what government does. It's a, it's a question that I think you could ask about uh, our personal lives. Can we just go by science when we're deciding what to do with our personal lives? I think there's also an issue of the rhetoric of follow the science here. So at some level of abstraction, I think everybody will agree that um, we need science to tell us what to do in a lot of these cases or we need science to advise or inform us about things relevant to what to do in, 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 in many cases. But science uh, isn't sufficient. You need some other knowledge too, and maybe some values, and we'll talk about that later. But what are the respective roles about them? And in what way is the rhetoric of follow the science functioning here? When people say they are going to follow the science, what are they saying? Uh, why are they being moved to say it? When people criticize people um, for not following the science, how often is this a fair-minded, a fair criticism of people who are ignoring or evading scientific facts? Sometimes surely it is. And how often is it masking something else? Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely something we should talk about. And I have, I have some thoughts on that too. So I wanted to first share just a, a, a couple of articles that I read recently where this was the explicit focus, where I thought the articles actually had some very good things to say, but there's, there's more to be said. Um, and one of them was, and these are just two of the most interesting ones I saw. There were, there were more than this. One of them was an article by Rich Lowry that appeared in Politico, uh, where the title was uh, quite straightforward. It argued science alone can't tell us how to respond to the coronavirus. This is Politico on April 29th. And Lowry makes some very interesting, uh, I think, and relevant points. He says, uh, quoting him here, once you're outside a lab setting and dealing with matters of public policy, questions of values and how to strike a balance between competing priorities are involved and they simply can't be settled by people in white lab coats. He gives the point that I think many other thinkers have made that you know, science can build an atomic bomb for you, but it can't tell you uh, whether or not you should use it. Uh, he also notes that, by the way, and this is one of the things that's good about his argument, is that he's not just saying, oh, well, we should only go with what the uh, economists tell us as opposed to the doctors, uh, because economists also uh, there's different economists from different fields, different uh, value perspectives, different politics. Are you talking to a left-wing economist, a right-wing economist? Uh, values come up in deciding how to apply economic knowledge as well. And so he concludes by saying, science can't tell us how we should think about the trade-off between economic misery caused by shutdowns and the public health risks of reopening. Uh, he concludes that it's we as a self-governing people who have to decide. Now, notably, he doesn't say a lot more about how we as a self-govern, how we as a self-governing people are going to decide that. Another interesting article uh, along the same lines was uh, this one from Fareed Zakaria uh, that ap appeared in the Washington Post on April 30th called The Pandemic is Too Important to be Left to the Scientists. And again, he is, he is not saying we shouldn't listen to the scientists at all. Uh, he does stress the fact that there is a lot of uncertainty about the science that we have about the coronavirus, especially since it's such a new virus. Uh, but separate from that, 
he makes the point that, look, you have to also look at what is the subject of each of the sciences and what are, do they deal with the relevant questions? Um, you know, for example, he, he says, there's this precautionary principle that uh, many epidemiologists will sometimes apply, but that itself, uh, if you apply in an unqualified way without taking other fields of knowledge into account can have really big costs. So even just within the field of medicine, uh, there are patients who are denied care for other ailments because everything is being focused on the coronavirus. And uh, outside of that, uh, we can get, look at other examples. Like if you wanted to speak just from a public health perspective, you would tell everybody should drive at a speed limit of 35. They'd save a lot of lives. But obviously there are costs involved in doing that. And the thing that I like best about the Zakaria article was his uh, final paragraph, which I thought was quite good. He said, Trump's willful ignorance makes us want to hand the country over to Fauci, but that's the wrong response. We need leaders who take responsibility and make choices informed deeply by science, but also by economics, politics, ethics, and other disciplines. Just as war is too important to be left to the generals, pandemics are too important to be left to the scientists. And uh, the fact that Zakaria here mentions, hey, ethics is actually a field. Uh, well, that maybe points a little further than the Lowry article did. Uh, it, we as a self-governing people are going to make a decision about how to take various fields into account. It would seem that ethics is going to be one of the fields that's going to help guide us. Um, so, Greg, I, I think that you had a point you wanted to make about how this is a, this point that Zakaria is making about, about uh, public policy decisions. This is not simply, uh, this doesn't only come up in public policy considerations. This is something that we face every day. Well, it seems to me in medicine, this is particularly striking because if you speak to doctors who work in public health, when they are speaking about public policy, um, they tend to err in a direction or default in a direction to saying we should do everything possible to prolong uh, as many lives as possible. And uh, there's no, you know, as Andrew Cuomo said, under the influence of some of these uh, medical policy people, you know, no matter what we have to do to save one life, it's worth it. Uh, but when you talk to a doctor who's talking to a, a sickly patient, right, I think, and they're, they're making personal medical decisions uh, and working together to make them, I think those doctors are, are very aware of the issues of quality of life and uh, what kind of a life do you want to lead? People think about whether they should have uh, do not resuscitate orders and under what conditions and uh, would you want to be kept alive this way versus that way? People, when they're in this frame of mind, I think are much better at thinking about this and recognizing that a person's values uh, are, are really relevant here and different people will have different values. And the, the role of the doctor is there to, for to advise, to say what will likely happen if we do this versus that, and uh, what are the odds of different things happening and so forth. And then the patient uh, is going to have his own preferences for what he wants out of life and his own risk tolerances. And uh, with those things in mind, people decide, for example, whether to get a course of chemotherapy or not, um, whether to uh, have a certain operation that's, you know, a high risk, high reward kind of situation. And 
there are personal decisions there, but that doesn't mean, and decisions that reference personal values, but that doesn't mean that any value that anybody might have is, is rational. If somebody is, you know, willing to undergo uh, a 50% chance of death because they're afraid of needles, right? And they don't want to get this shot that will save them from the thing that is a 50-50 chance of killing them. Uh, we think that that is an irrational, and I think it is an irrational preference. Um, and likewise, um, I think most doctors would say that in most cases, right, um, people choosing not to vaccinate their children is due to ignorance and irrationality, not um, not different rational value preferences. But there are differences of rational value preferences that people can have. And part of the role of ethics is to create a, um, a the, the principles by which we could define uh, what is the scope of different, the range of different rational personal values you might have. Yeah, and I wanted to comment on one, uh, uh, another article that I read that where this kind of issue really came into focus. And it's a good way, I think, of concretizing what is at stake here. So I read an article in the Washington Post, May 4th, by Jeremy Faust and Carlos Del Rio called The Metric That Could Tell Us When It's Safe to Emerge, as in when it's safe to open the economy. And uh, it's, it's an article by two medical experts. One's a doctor, one's a, a medicine professor, arguing that uh, some of the measures that we've used uh, to decide the scale, the intensity of the pandemic are unreliable. And so, and this has been widely commented on that um, it's just looking at the number of cases isn't all that telling uh, because it depends entirely on how much testing has been done. And often the more testing you do, the more cases you find, the more asymptomatic cases you find. Uh, by the same token, the, the, the case fatality rate, which is the, the number of deaths counted per cases also depends on the number of tests you've done and so doesn't really necessarily tell you uh, they recommend that we look at something called excess mortality uh, as a more objective measure of of the scale of the of the pandemic uh, this is what tells you how many people are dying in a given week compared to the usual number of deaths uh, this week in, a, in an average year and to me when i read this it makes a lot of sense i think this does sound like a more objective measure of what the, uh, you know, how bad uh, this disease is having an effect on people. Uh, of course, just looking at something like excess mortality doesn't tell you whether these excess deaths are due directly to the, the disease or to say side effects of our responses to the disease. Again, people who can't get treated because uh, they can't get into the hospital. Uh, but this is something that, that the authors that Faust and Del Rio actually acknowledge. Um, and, and I think Part of what they're saying is it's still likely that many or most of these excess deaths are from the pandemic. But then making this very sensible scientific observation, they draw the following inference from it. They say, this is also why excess mortality presents an unusual opportunity by, closing, by closely monitoring excess mortality, which is occurring all over the United States, it's possible to determine when it is safe to reopen the economy and when it is too soon. But this particular policy recommendation that they're making, that does not follow from the science alone. It's very useful science, but it, it follows from the science plus the assumption that the ordinary death rate is the, is the ideal that we should move towards. And this assumption discounts 
the possibility that, well, individuals should be able to make cho choices uh, that involve taking increased amounts of risk with their life, uh, given the sorts of values they want to pursue, which is the, the point that you were speaking to, Greg, talking about the kind of uh, the sensitivity that doctors have to quality of life issues uh, yeah, when recommending a course of treatment to patients. I think that's true, but I think it's also bad science. Um, death rate, whether it's death rate from COVID-19 or excess mortality rate from which you're inferring COVID-19 is a lagging indicator of the state of the, the epidemic in a given area. Uh, there's a 14-day incubation period, and then the time from, uh, from uh, symptoms to death is another 14 days. So you're, if you were doing this, you would know a month after the fact if you were having a problem. You'd already know you were having a problem by then. So I mean, I think it's, it's um, a very useful statistic in retrospect to figure mm -hmm. out what happened with the pandemic. And maybe um, uh, if you're doing things like trying to compare one place's curve to another, it's certainly a number that should be in, in the mix. But my understanding is it would be a a disaster to try to use what your excess mortality rate is today mm. as an indication uh, to set your policy today about what activities should or shouldn't be illegal, whatever goal you had. So I mean, I think the, the real values question is, what is our goal in setting public policy here? Is it to ensure that there's not the, the scale of increase that would imperil the hospital system? That was the original kind of way the flattening the curve uh, idea was originally presented? Is it to minimize the number of deaths altogether? Um, what, what is the goal that's being um, pursued by this policy? And why is that the goal? And is it the right kind of goal for public policy? That's one kind of question. And then there's another technical question, a more um, a question for the, the experts in the field. Um, what, given that our goal is, say, to uh, ensure that there's not the kind of surge that would threaten hospital capacity, then uh, what indices should we use to measure uh, how likely we are to get ourselves into that situation uh, and therefore we should take extraordinary measures? And it, it seems like this suggestion, as you're explaining it, is a, a suggestion as to what indice we would need to look at to, to do that. And now I'm, I'm not a, a doctor, but I think I know enough to know that this is a bad one for that precisely because it would tell us a month after everybody was dead that everybody was dead. So there's a question about what is the goal of these, uh, of these shutdown orders? That's itself going to be based on a number of value questions, including a more general question about what the role of government is. But then assuming that that's the goal, there's then a specific, there's going to be a measure that's well-tuned to that. Maybe something like number of hospitalizations or rate of increase or decrease in hospitalizations would be better as opposed to excess mortality. I mean, that's um, the number that the people I trust are looking at is, is hospitalization rates. Um, I mean, one issue is if your, your assumption is that we're remaining in lockdown for a long time and we're looking for when we can exit lockdown, then perhaps a um, decrease in excess mortality would be an indice you could use for that. But I think on ideological grounds, that's the wrong way to think about it. And even if you do think about it that way, you're going to need to think about what's our trigger for then reimposing uh, restrictions on motion. If your premise is we should have them whenever they're not going to lead to more death. And it certainly can't be a trigger to reimpose them that 
others excess mortality because it would be way too late. You'd be in crisis. Yeah. By then. So if you see excess mortality going down, then at the very least, it's a sign that maybe it's a time to reopen because you should have done it two weeks ago or something like that. Yeah. Um, so Thomas in the, uh, the Q&A box, and I should, I should mention uh, to people that if you are in Zoom with us and you'd like to ask us a question, start to look at those. Um, best way to do it is to hover over the screen. There's a button for Q&A. Uh, that's the best place to post questions. You should also feel free to put comments in the chat. We'll look at those stupid questions go best in the Q&A box. Thomas in the Q&A box asks, isn't the answer that philosophy and its issues is more fundamental than special sciences? So the philosophic guidance is needed to direct the science, like the statement about the atomic bomb. And yes, that's, that's what I was going to begin to, uh, the lesson I was going to begin to draw from these examples, um, that when you're talking about questions about values, whether it's about uh, how to you know, decide your own treatment or whether it's a question about how government should decide to contain uh, a disease. Uh, these aren't questions, when you're talking about values, you're not talking about questions that are addressed by the special sciences like epidemiology or economics. Uh, these are questions of philosophy. Philosophy is what erects standards for evaluating uh, the knowledge claims made by different sciences and certainly for establishing values to guide our actions. And I should note, Greg, it's interesting when you look at that early, earlier proposal about using excess mortality, I mean, one assumption, one value assumption in addition to uh, the idea that the normal rate of mortality is the one that we should uh, aim towards. I mean, generally, I think a lot of people who have... Uh, figured that you could infer uh, policy conclusions from science are assuming one or another ethical theory. And this is something that we talked about or that uh, Ankar and Aaron talked about in a previous webinar. They're assuming either a kind of utilitarian ethical theory uh, or a, what they call a Rawlsian theory. The first one is the one that says the aim of ethics is to maximize the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, or at least minimize the pain for the greatest number of people. Uh, and the second, the Rawlsian theory, is that it's most important to focus on the, the suffering of the least well-off. And those are uh, different theories, and you don't have to agree with them. Uh, and it's a question in philosophy to decide on what is the proper uh, goal, not only of government policy, but also of just human life uh, generally. Um, now, the question I think this raises is, if it's true, as a number of these articles have been suggesting, that the science alone does not answer questions about values, if that's a question for ethics, for philosophy, does this imply that there isn't, since, since science is one thing and philosophy is another, does this imply that there isn't a rational way of answering questions about values uh, Lowry and some other commentators I, I read uh, seem to almost imply that. Uh, that. That's in part, I think, why he's saying this just has to be a decision that we make as a self-governing people, and he doesn't mention any standards that we're going to use. Uh, so, I mean, what do you think, Greg? Is this is 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 being is being objective about how to respond to these kinds of situations and make decisions? Is this just a pipe dream, uh, and we can be scientific up to a point? be rational up to a point, but after that, it's deuces wild. I mean, you already did touch on this a little bit, talking about rational versus irrational preferences. There, there's rationality in your values, and there's rationality about structuring a society 
so as to enable people to pursue values rationally. And there are principles in ethics for the one and in political philosophy for the other. And there are debates within each of those fields about which principles are the right principles, just as there are debates within science about of various sciences about which theories are the correct theories. Um, and, you know, uh, we have our, our views on those things. Um, I do think that there is a, um, a sense in which, as Lowry is right to say, it's something we have to decide as a self-governing people, not in the sense that whatever decision we reach is the correct one, but in that it's, it's through a political process that, that people accept correctly or incorrectly the philosophical principles about how we ought to govern ourselves, how we ought to be organized, and then they vote for people and endorse positions and politicians who hold what they do, uh, hold the right views on this. So you can't delegate your moral decisions to a philosopher or a political philosopher on the grounds that they're the experts on it and so they'll make the decision for it. The, the role for a philosopher there is to, you know, kind of help teach and explain the different theories and give you reasons to prefer one rather than the other. And hopefully you pick the right theory and then you vote for the right guys or, you know, and they govern well, just like the role for a scientific advisor isn't to um, dictate decisions to the politicians, but to uh, explain to them the reasons for thinking that uh, within the field that they're experts in, uh, uh, what the effects will be of, of various policies. So assuming that we're not talking about just handing things over to a philosopher king, instead we're talking about, well, getting guidance from philosophy and making our decisions. How do we do that in a way that's rational? What does a rational philosophic view of ethics actually look like? Well, I think the, if you're asking what's the true theory, of ethics. I think uh, I'm an advocate of the objectivist ethics, and you can read the article, The Objectivist Ethics. I'm sure it's up on ARI's site and read some of the things uh, I and others have written. Uh, that article is by Ayn Rand. Um, uh, ben, you're prepared with a slide for it. Uh, so you can look to that for what I think are the fundamental principles here. And then in, in, in political philosophy, the, the relevant principle is the principle of individual rights. Uh, Rand has an article, Man's Rights, in that same book and also in The Virtue of Selfishness, uh, sorry, and also in Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. Uh, so I think those are the, 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 you know, in essence, the right theory. And then there's a lot of good secondary material on it, material elaborating it. Um, but if you but, had to introduce to, uh, uh, you know, new viewers what the essence of that view is and why, uh, how it proposes to offer rational guidance in making choices about values, how would you motivate I mean, I think the fundamental standard in ethics is what promotes a man's life or a human life. And for each individual to be guiding his actions by uh, trying to achieve uh, a human life for himself. And then we have to think about what is a human life? In what way do human beings live? And the answer is uh, the, the three things to really... Uh, or let's just see the two central ones to really keep in mind is it's a life of reasoning. It's a life of using your mind to make decisions, to guide your actions. Um, and so valuing your mind and your own ability to think and make choices. And two, it's a life in which you are purposeful and productive. You create the kinds of values that you need to, uh, that you need to stay alive. And you recognize that all of the values that human beings require to survive and to prosper 
come from human beings being rationally productive. And so you value those traits in other people and want to um, relate to them by trade uh, to uh, mutual benefit by mutual agreement. And then you want a political system that uh, enables that by protecting people's ability to live in this way and to interact with one another only via trade. Uh, which is the system of capitalism and individual rights. So if I could draw one possible implication about this uh, from this, and you tell me what you think about this. If, if the question that we're grappling with is how do we make rational policy decisions? And part of the answer to that is, well, we need to do them. To, we need to do it with a rational ethics. It sounds to me like part of what you're saying, a rational ethics look, looks like is, is an ethics that actually holds rationality and reason as a value itself. Mm -hmm. uh, just like s the practice of science itself holds reason as a value. Scientists think it's good to be objective. It's, it's bad to be prejudiced and biased. So rational ethics is one that's going to say, well, uh, one of the things you should do with your life is, is value your mind because this is where other values come from, whether we create them for ourselves or trade them with others. And then part of what it means for a government to be guided with that as, as a kind of beacon is government exists to make sure that people are able to use their, their minds for themselves to create values. And that's gonna then have some implications, isn't it, for how we think about what the right standard for uh, government management of a health crisis is going to be, because it's, it's, it's going to entail that, yeah, it's not just a question of how many deaths do you save in terms of raw numbers. It's, it's going to be something more about what can allow people to return to a condition where they're able to be free to make choices about their own levels of risk and, and this kind of thing. Yeah, I think that last is the essential. So um, risk is a part of life. Death is a part of life. Disease is a part of life. Contagion is a part of life. And... Um, human beings live by making choices for themselves and by um, figuring out how to chart their own courses through life. That's the only way we can live. It's the only way we can be successful. And the only way we can live and be successful as a society is by enabling people to um, make these kinds of choices about their lives uh, and including about what they produce and how they deal with one another and how they trade uh, in a way where they're free from interference from other people in it. And one of the ways in which other people can interfere with them and it is by getting them sick. So we're, if we're in a situation where there's a very contagious virus and it can kill you or get you sick and so forth, um, we need to um, know something about that. The government has a role in figuring out how contagious it is in um, what kinds of things put people at risk of it that those people are unable to control for until so you're m making a threat to them and so forth. And so there need to be rules for how the government responds, rules, maybe changed rules for what would count as in effect an assault or uh, on somebody now that would not be the case if there wasn't this disease out, if there weren't any diseases. Uh, and so the government needs to, to figure out how to deal with the crisis in that way. There might be some temporary emergency measures that are justified. Ankar Gatte had a a good talk about this, how a government should deal with a healthcare crisis that I think is online now. Um, but ultimately its goal has to be to get us as quickly as possible out of the acute situation in which 
any acute situation in which extraordinary measures might be required and get us into a situation where whatever level of increased risk there is, people uh, are free to figure out how to manage it and to figure out how to go on with their lives. Um, this virus is with us. It's going to be with us for a while. We can't treat it as an emergency where we're hiding in our houses forever. And uh, if we do, we'll all die because, you know, people won't, people will starve, supply chains will crash, it will not, it's not a way that human beings can live for years on end, and it's doubtful we could do it for months on end. So there's a, a need to figure out how to, consistent with giving people, uh, not, not uh, exposing people unwillingly to risks they wouldn't choose to bear, uh, how can we enable people to, uh, and businesses and uh, all kinds of organizations to figure out how to get on with life and what kind of modifications to uh, what would our standard practices are the ones that we should be doing. And it's easy to think of examples, things like, you know, you could imagine restaurants or malls or, you know, things opening up, but saying a condition of coming in here is you have to be using the Google, Apple, um, contact tracing app on your phone and some other mall would say, well, we know even then you have to also take a swab test before you come in and, uh, and people would then start to know which ones to go to if they have different uh, risk profiles. So uh, I think it's, it's a good, uh, I think we've, we've uh, covered most of our bases and I, I'd like to really open things up uh, to the audience at this point to submit more questions. So again, if you're in zoom and you have questions, please consider, plugging them into the Q&A module. I'm also trying to glance at what's going on on Facebook. Can't promise that I'll see everything there. It's not possible ever to follow what's going on, on YouTube, but uh, please send us please send us your questions. And, and you might also put up the slide again that shows people how to get onto Zoom if they're maybe watching on Facebook, but would rather. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Um, uh, go to zoom.us slash join meeting ID 812-506-718. I'll leave that up just for a few more seconds because the other thing that I wanted to do was to mention a few other resources that people can take a look at if they're interested in learning more about this uh, perspective on ethics that we've just been discussing. So we already talked about Ayn Rand's essay, The Objectivist Ethics, which appears in The Virtue of Selfishness. Uh, we've also been talking about the role of philosophy as, as a fundamental science that helps us integrate the knowledge that comes from the other sciences and guide our lives on the basis of it. And the place where Ayn Rand had the most to say about that was, was in her essay, Philosophy Who Needs It, which appears in a book by the same name. So that's something else to check out. And I'd also uh, like to recommend an article that appeared in New Ideal. Uh, actually, this was one of our very first articles uh, from a couple of years ago uh, by my colleague on Cargate called Finding Morality and Happiness Without God. Uh, some of the focus here is on how uh, uh, religious morality is not a rational approach to morality, but a lot of what this article is about is it's, a, it's an introductory uh, uh, entree into what it means to think about ethics in a rational way from an objectivist perspective. And this is probably the best one single place to start if this is something that is new to you. Okay, so let's take a look at some questions. Uh, th there's an interesting question that actually uh, Chuck posted, which I think would be good to start with. What do you think will be the consequences of the general public's having a fairly high degree of confidence in doctors and scientists 
while assigning professional philosophers little to no credibility. I mean, I think he's right, Greg, that, uh, that so there, there is a real kind of reverence attached to scientists. It's assumed that they can tell us what to do. Philosophers, on the other hand, are viewed as ivory tower, academic, detached from life. Uh, you have thoughts on that attitude and its consequences? Yeah. Where I'm does that attitude come from? I'm a lot more concerned about the respect given the field than given the people. So um, I think science has more respect than scientists do. Um, everyone just takes the scientists they don't like and say, well, they're not real scientists mm -hmm. or proper scientists. Um, but philosophy, I don't think as a field gets enough respect. I think most philosophers maybe don't deserve it. A lot of them don't, uh, you know, and, but a lot of people who call themselves scientists don't too. But what I think is the real issue is people have respect for that. There is such a thing as science and there, there is such a thing as objectivity in it, even if they don't, uh, agree who has it or know how to tell. Um, what I think they don't have is the idea that in the field of values and in the field of methodology, which are the fields that philosophy at the most abstract level of methodology uh, deals with, I don't think people have the idea that there's uh, a way to do that rationally and a way to do it right, that there's a field here. And I think it's for that reason that they don't know how to pick good scientists often and don't know how to process the scientific information, right? And um, Chuck asks, what will be the results of it? Or what were the results? I mean, the results- What will be the consequences of the- of The, the consequences of it are a world where we have now, a world we have now where our last election was between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in America, which was a particularly uh, unsavory lot of char characters, but the last dozen elections weren't through great, too great, weren't great shakes either. And the next one won't be. And where we have, uh, in charge, um, some right now during a major crisis, someone who doesn't care what's true and doesn't care about how to, and isn't interested in leading the country. And we have many of the people in the opposition party criticizing him and in the opposition media criticizing him, um, taking cheap shots with equal vigor as the important ones and saying, well, uh, if people want to do anything than what I, this columnist, want to do, uh, they're not following the science and taking the fact that some of the political leadership does seem uh, too often indifferent to science uh, to dismiss anyone who disagrees, therefore, with them as an anti-science. So I think it's, um, we're, it's not consequences we have to look forward to. It's consequences we're already living through. And I think we'll just have more of the same until... Um, Hopefully, the, the, the direness of the political situation on all sides now is, um, will shake people uh, into thinking we need to think more about what our values are, uh, how we can tell what are proper values and what aren't, uh, and what the role of different of science and of other um, rational modes of thinking are in life. I think it's important to emphasize that you, you can't escape philosophy. You have one even when you don't realize it. And you can't escape the, the, the consequences of defaulting on your philosophy. And you see that with people's attitude towards science. So, I mean, I think Chuck is right that there, in the culture, there's generally a higher regard for science than there is for philosophy. But uh, it's still not even as high of a regard as there should be. I mean, people, as you, as you emphasize, people pick and choose the scientists they like. 
And so it's often not a genuine respect for science that's motivating them. It's the desire to find some authority. Uh, it's not any kind, it, it doesn't come from a place that really understands what the scientific method is or what it's for, why it's valuable. Uh, and so you see people seizing on these scientific studies that they use to kind of rationalize after the fact somebody's claims about hydroxychloroquine or somebody's claims about UV light or disinfectant when uh, it's not really, they don't understand the science, they don't value the science, they're just seizing on it as a way to justify uh, something after the fact. Um, Let's um, talk about Reed's uh, question. Sure. Uh, so Reed's asking, why not isolate, protect the vulnerable, and end the lockdown for the non-vulnerable death? Well, there's a question where there's definitely, it's not just the science that's going to help you answer it. You're, we're going to have to think a little bit about what are the values at stake. I mean, in general, this is the kind of approach that I favor as a matter of policy. Uh, I prefer not to talk about, I mean, lockdown is, is a fine word for what's happening in some of the country, but I think of the more generic term as restrictions on movement. Um, and I think what we should be doing is lifting the restrictions on movement uh, on everyone where possible um, and letting people then make their own decisions about uh, how vulnerable am I, how, uh, how you know, much can I go out of the house and what, what risks am I running? And understanding that every time you go out of the house, you are increasing the risk to other people, but only to other people insofar as they too choose to engage, choose to go out of the house. And then I think uh, institutions that um, house a lot of vulnerable people, um, excuse me, in particular, um, in particular nursing homes and uh, you know, retirement communities and so forth, um, ought to, uh, you know, certainly enact policies that are maybe lockdown policies, not allowing visitors, not letting people in, extra sanitation and um, testing policies, whatever they can manage. Uh, it might be that in some cases, uh, since the government is running the hospital system and the hospital system is, is in threat of being overrun, that the government needs to institute some restrictions on, on motion. But I think wherever... Uh, and some of them might be general, like no stadiums, you know, uh, because if there's a super spreader event at a stadium, that can immediately put uh, put everyone into uh, a crisis. Um, so maybe maybe some restrictions like that are are uh, warranted locally, uh, but uh, currently. But the other ones that if they need to put them in, I think they should first be starting with uh, restrictions on the people who are most vulnerable and therefore most likely in need of hospitalization. So that's what I think is. Uh, ethically the right thing to do. But notice that that kind of a decision involves both science and, uh, and ethics and political theory. Yeah, and I, I, I wanted to say something about that too because I've, I've heard people make the following criticism of that recommendation. They'll say, this is callous. You're talking about just locking away, throwing out the key, the old and vulnerable people. But that's not at all the perspective that I think you're coming from here. What you're, I mean, the value that's guiding your recommendation, it sounds to me, is, is a respect for each and every person's uh, autonomy and, uh, and volition. And if vulnerable people are worried about being exposed to the virus, then what you're saying is they should have the right to be able 
to protect themselves and 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 stay in a place where they can be reasonably certain that they're not being exposed and that, that there's a role for government in protecting them. Uh, but likewise, by the same token, you're you're saying if someone judges themselves not to be vulnerable uh, and they have a higher tolerance for risk, they have the right to take greater risks, provided uh, that in doing that, they are not unduly exposing other people to risks that they don't want. Yeah, I mean, I think in a situation where the government incorrectly or correctly deems that it needs to impose restrictions on people's emotions to prevent prevent some overwhelming of the healthcare system, then I think it's plausible to place those restrictions first on the most vulnerable. So ideally people are, are and they should be left free uh, to just make these decisions based on their own risk preferences. And sometimes, I mean, it, it can be um, rational to risk death, right? I mean, so suppose you're somebody who's in his 80s, you have a lot of pre-existing conditions you think the odds are you've got another year or two. And maybe it'll be a year and a half before you're vaccinated in a, in a good, you know, the best case scenario or something. And you think I've only got, you know, a good two years anyway. I want to spend them seeing my grandkids and I'm not going to coop myself up in not getting to see my grandkids at all uh, in the hope that in a year and a half from now, I'll be vaccinated and I'll be able to do it. And then I'll be able to see them three times and then drop dead of something else, right? If that's the situation you're in, you might um, rationally choose to risk uh, risk death uh, from, from, this vac- from this disease. Um, you know, people who say that what we're doing is saving lives, I mean, it's sort of true, but the mortality rate for a human being is 100%. We all die. It's just an issue of when. And uh, particularly for people near the end of their lives who are the most vulnerable and the most likely to have this shortened, you know, to imminent death, uh, also like, you know, spending a year or six months or whatever of their lives in a um, constrained situation, that is a larger percent of their remaining time, even in the best case scenario, than it is for most of the rest of us. So I think even for elderly people and and people with uh, bad pre-existing conditions, uh, they ought to be able to make their own choices. But if we're in a situation where we deem it's an emergency and restrictions on motion are uh, absolutely you know, necessary to prevent a situation in which everybody would suddenly stop, start dying and there's no hospitals to deal with them, um, I think it should be seriously considered starting them with the people who are the most, uh, most vulnerable, most likely to need hospitals. Now, you, you said that that would be the most obvious thing to do where the rationale for the, the the orders in the first place is to protect the healthcare system from overwhelming. But obviously part of the reason why that has become such a crucial factor in government calculus is because government currently has essential control of the healthcare system. And the assumption that it should I mean, obviously, we're not going to change our assumptions about that, or at least the people who are in charge of our society aren't going to change their assumptions about that during the course of this pandemic. But uh, since we're talking about the role of philosophic assumptions in making decisions, you know, one thing that might be worth flagging here is, is that an assumption we eventually want to check? Uh, And how many assumptions like that uh, are responsible for the fact that well, the, the healthcare system that we have was in the state that it was, uh, the state of preparedness or lack thereof that it was. Uh, and 
Bradley in the Q&A box also asked a question about uh, how would this whole thing have turned out if there were no regulations regarding the medical industry? To what degree have these regulations stifled the ability of the sector to prepare and adapt before and during the pandemic? There's a lot of questions we could ask there also about what philosophic assumptions are at stake in, in, in having implemented those regulations in the first place. Yeah, but I think it's morally wrong to have socialized medicine like we have in America and like uh, most other countries have. And people who don't think we have it in America don't think it just because they don't know what free market medicine would be. Um, we have single payer medicine for uh, everyone over 65, which is most of the people who get sick most of the time. And then we have um, very tightly controlled uh, medical system for everybody else. So we have you know, mostly socialized med medicine and have since uh, the mid 60s. Um, there's no such thing as being opposed to socialized medicine if you're not opposed to Medicare. Medicare is socialized medicine. Um, but what would it look like? And so the, the, the state of our current healthcare system is the state of a socialized, mostly socialized healthcare system. What would it be like if we didn't have that? Well, we don't know exactly. I think it would be, there'd be a lot more capacity. Um, but, you know, we, you know, we don't live in the alternate world where we can see the unseen um, to take the old Bastiat uh, kind of point. Now, what, one thing that I think would happen if we had, uh, free medicine, which means politically free medicine, medicine that wasn't controlled by the government, is these value choices would be a lot more explicit and a lot more part of how we think about medical care. Um, so everybody dies. Everybody incurs a lot of medical costs in the later part of their lives, or at least a lot of people do. Um, there'd be a lot more thinking about is it worth how it? much am I willing to spend over the course of my life to have how much better medical care in various kinds of emergency uh, or end of life situations? Because you're not that, having to think about it because there's a third party that's paying. Yeah, for it. because the third party is going to bear the cost. And uh, most countries that have socialized medicine have, in effect, uh, rationing or people during the Obamacare that have more fully socialized medicine, uh, uh, and that during the Obamacare period. Uh, that is the debate over it. People were calling death, death, uh, panels. death panels. And um, that's a somewhat tendentious way of describing it. But yeah, there are people who decide how to ration care for the very agent. And um, we have less of that here. Um, but we both here and in those other countries have one size fits all solutions to how much money is going to be spent, how many measures are going to be spent for the very elderly. And people are not free to decide during the course of their lives, you know, I would like to have this much percent more disposable cash over the course of my life and um, less platinum care uh, when I'm in my dotage versus I want to uh, have less disposable cash in my 40s or 50s or whatever. And, uh, you know, the Cadillac of um, IV drips uh, when I'm uh, senile or something. So the decisions about what kinds of surgeries, what kinds of things, uh, these would be understood as products that have to be provided in difficult situations. The whole healthcare economy would be different and there would be uh, the whole way insurance works would be different. And we don't know what it would look like, but I think um, we would be a lot more prepared morally and thoughtfully to think about uh, end of life decisions than we are now. When we pretend that we can uh, that everybody has a right to be saved at any cost, 
uh, which is basically what happens. And then when you're in a situation where the medical system is under stress, no one knows how to make decisions and people aren't free to, um, work extra, put more of their resources towards having uh, better or different kinds of care than others. Great. So Greg, Greg I think we should uh, start to wrap things up in the interest of keeping this around 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, in a minute, I'm going to put a few more graphics on my screen. So if you uh, turn your camera off when I do that, that would be That'd be great. But thanks. Thanks very much for joining us in this conversation today. Um, and I think what one of the things that we've just uh, engaged in and in, in taking careful systematic look at some of the assumptions behind different policy proposals and uh, noting how well you can raise questions about them and you can challenge them and you can show them to be true or false using philosophy is, I mean, helps illustrate the fact that philosophy itself is a kind of science. It's the science that integrates all of these other sciences. And so in a sense, we should just follow the science, but that's only in the, in the, the much broader sense in which philosophy is uh, included on that list. So thanks, Greg. Um, I want to remind everybody, if you were watching this and enjoyed what you saw and you'd like to see more episodes of New Ideal, that you can, uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. This will, uh, especially if you click the bell, you'll get notifications when new items are posted. Um, otherwise, you can also, using that link that I showed before, uh, follow us on Zoom. Um, I'll put the Zoom number up again. If you, if you, you can register uh, to uh, get emails so that you'll always be notified when uh, a, new, a new episode is happening on Zoom. But otherwise, I just want to remind people that this program comes to you Mondays and Wednesdays, pretty much every Monday and Wednesday, uh, 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, 2 p.m. Eastern time. We will be back next week uh, with more commentary on uh, events from an objectivist philosophic perspective. But I'll also just close with a reminder one last time about uh, this coming weekend's Ocon Live. If you go to einrand.org slash Ocon Live, you can learn more about the program that's being uh, offered, uh, some great speeches uh, both by Greg and uh, Jerome Brook and Ann Cargate and Tara Smith, all unified around the theme of a life of purpose. Uh, and we hope that uh, uh, you'll see again how the objectivist perspective of the importance of philosophy in guiding your life comes out of that discussion. So thanks everyone for joining us. Thanks for submitting your questions. Sorry, we're not always able to get to every question. See you all next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.